In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Good morning, everybody. I know it is strange for me to preach with a mask on, though, as Pastor Sarah said, I'm not feeling very well this morning and want to be careful. I know that preaching with a mask on feels impersonal, so if you don't know what my facial expression is, just picture a smile at all times. Mostly because I'm happy to be here with you, Bill. That's why. Happy to be here with all of you. And I may also speak a little slower than normal, because if I get too excited, my glasses will fog up, and then who knows where we'll be. So this morning, we finally hear about the wise men arriving in Bethlehem to see Jesus, bringing their gifts and kneeling down to worship. And of course, we all know what happens next, right? After the wise men left, that's when the wise women arrived bringing their own gifts, fresh diapers, formula, meals for the week. You know, gifts that might actually help parents who are raising an infant. Because it turns out gold, frankincense, and myrrh aren't the most helpful things in the middle of the night when a baby won't sleep. All right, a pretty weak joke this morning, I get it. The truth is we don't know very much about these wise men who came to see Jesus. In fact, we can't even agree on what to call them. Some translations of the Bible stick with wise men, while others call them magi, and still others call them astrologers. 
We don't know how long after the birth of Jesus they arrived, though they certainly were not there with the shepherds and the sheep. Early tradition suggests there may have actually been 12 of them rather than the three that we often picture to match the gifts that they brought. It's likely that they were simply people who studied stars and celestial bodies to find signs about the present and about the future. They looked to the heavens for portents and omens. And at some point, they saw a star in the sky that told them a child had been born who was king of the Jews. So they traveled to see this new king, to bring their gifts and to worship. And I think for many of us, our familiarity with this story may prevent us from really seeing and hearing it. May most of us have heard this story about the wise men many times, and as a result, we've kind of lost a sense of how bizarre and incredible it is. I mean, think about it. They went because they saw a star. A star. There is no tradition I know about within Judaism or Christianity that embraces looking at stars for signs and directions or as a way of receiving a divine message. In fact, when the Israelites entered the promised land, God forbid them from adopting the religious practices of other people, things like divination and sorcery and consulting the dead and casting spells, and it's possible that looking to the stars for messages was part of that forbidden list. What these wise men, these magi were doing, certainly doesn't sound like faith in the way that we understand, teach, and practice. It sounds more like, like magic or like astrology, which some people embrace and others find dangerous and many of us just think is kind of silly, but nevertheless is certainly not an historically Christian thing. And yet... And yet, these wise men were welcomed. They, too, found a place at the manger. There was a space for them to bring their gifts, to worship, and to be changed by Jesus. And this is kind of scandalous. These wise men, these magi, were led by a star. I mean, imagine someone coming to worship with us because their Ouija board told them to believe in Jesus and go to church. And yet again, they were welcomed. They too found a place at the manger. There was space for them to bring their gifts, to worship, and to be changed by Jesus. Nobody carted them at the door. They weren't asked to renounce their stargazing ways and embrace Judaism or convert to Christianity before they were allowed to come in. Mary didn't insist they recite the small catechism or proclaim their belief in the Trinity before they could see Jesus. They didn't have to worship a certain way or confess a certain set of beliefs before they were allowed to fall on their knees. There wasn't even a sense that, that they were somehow less 
because they didn't hear about Jesus in the traditional manner of of angels and messengers, but were instead drawn to Christ in a more unorthodox way. They were simply welcomed. Nobody thought it was their job or responsibility to be a gatekeeper for Jesus. No one thought they had to protect the good news, God's mysteries, in order to keep them pure. Because it didn't matter what drew someone to Christ. What mattered is that they were drawn. It's hard to know where the outer bounds of Christian faith are. I guess it's actually probably impossible. We could spend a lot of time talking about whether specific practices or beliefs are part of Christianity or not. We could expend a lot of energy trying to draw very clear boundaries as to who is in and who is out. But this passage tells us that this way of thinking misses the point. What matters and what unites us is what lies at the center of our faith, Jesus. The one born a helpless babe, the one crucified and risen, Jesus. It doesn't matter what draws people to Christ. What matters is that they are drawn. Right now, we're living in a time of a lot of spiritual upheaval. We all know that churches have grown smaller, that many are struggling, that many have closed. People feel anxious about what the church's future will look like. And I've heard many people lament about how the world has changed. And and I understand that sadness and that sorrow because I feel it too. But all the data and all the studies and all the interviews say the same thing, that while people are becoming less religious, they are not becoming less spiritual. And that distinction matters. A few years ago, a Methodist pastor named Stephen Bauman said this. He said, we live in a time of great spiritual agitation. Our culture is rife with seekers of every sort who attempt to make their way to the most fulfilling destination as they respond to deep interior longings. Many follow or dabble in myriad spiritual approaches, including ancient esoteric traditions like astrology and psychic phenomenon, as well as amalgams of Eastern practices and Western science. Every variety of religious expression is as available as the click of a mouse or meeting with one's next-door neighbor. The church has often condemned or ridiculed these alternative spiritual means and their practitioners. Yet in this famous story of the wise men's trek to Bethlehem, Matthew takes a different measure. Our world is changing, but people are still looking for answers to life's deepest questions, just as humans always have. People are still searching for meaning and and purpose, love and acceptance, hope and fulfillment, a, a connection with something greater than themselves that can help them to get through all of life's ups and downs and joys and sorrows. People are still searching for those things but they struggle to see how organized religion 
and tradition and practice can connect them to those things. I think one of the church's primary challenges is to find a way to meet people where they are, to develop our ability to show people how Jesus can satisfy their deep spiritual longing, while also remaining open to people being drawn to the manger in ways that we find new or unorthodox, unfamiliar, strange, even uncomfortable, and creating space for them too. As Lutherans, we have always believed that God works through tangible means to bring us grace and forgiveness and new life. In the waters of baptism, we're washed clean and made new. Through bread and wine, God's grace comes to us and we we feast on God's goodness. Through the scriptures and the, the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit creates and sustains faith. We know that God works in these ways because Jesus has told us so because we've experienced it for ourselves. But that doesn't mean those are the only ways in which God works. Some folks are going to be drawn to the manger, drawn to Jesus by things as strange as a star in the sky, outside our traditional understanding of faith. Some people seeking Jesus are going to practice faith in ways that seem strange or foreign to us. Some people seeking Jesus may embrace other traditions alongside their faith in Christ. Some people seeking Jesus may have beliefs that seem close to the outer bounds of Christianity or that fall on the other side. And the church can choose to ridicule or condemn people who are honestly searching for truth wherever they can find it. People who are just trying to find meaning and purpose in their lives, who embrace all sorts of spiritual practices and beliefs on their journey towards the manger. The church can do that. Though if we do, then I don't think we get to lament anything other than our own lack of compassion, empathy, and love. This passage calls us to another way, to make space at the manger for all people to bring their gifts, to come, to worship, and to be changed by Jesus. I'm not suggesting that we should water down the Christian faith or abandon our traditions or compromise who we are or what we believe. No. This story simply tells us that people will be drawn to Jesus in all sorts of ways, and that should be celebrated. We should do whatever we can to help people as they journey towards the manger, no matter who they are or how they have gotten there. We don't need to be gatekeepers or enforce some sort of requirements on those who are seeking, because the truth is, for those of us who kneel at the feet of Jesus, For those of us who find our way to the manger, for those of us who gaze upon the cross, for those of us who stumble upon the empty tomb, no matter what we've brought with us or how we get there, it changes us. Encountering Jesus changes us. Changes everyone. And we know this is true because encountering Jesus 
has changed us. So in this new year, full of hope and expectation, let's remember that it doesn't matter how people are drawn to Christ. What matters is that Christ bids all to come and that there is room for everyone. Amen.